It's a joy to open God's word with you today. If you're new with us, my name's David Cassidy. I'm the pastor here at Spanish River Church. Look forward to greeting many of you personally afterwards. I'd like to invite you right now to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're gonna pick this up over here in verse 36. If you're new with us, we've just begun a series called Faith for the Journey. Every one of us who call on the name of Jesus are in a journey all the way through the end of life in which we live by faith. Faith is not something which is simply a momentary confession at a particular time, oh, I believed, and, and then is abandoned and set aside as a, a kind of experience which happened over there. No, it is a day-to-day walk with God. We walk by faith and not by sight. And as you'll note in this passage, a text which is written to people under pressure, to people who have suffered and are suffering, under so much pressure that they were considering abandoning what they believed and walking away from it. The writer comes to them and says, no, you need the kind of faith which endures. These are people who have seen their leaders martyred and put in prison. They've suffered the confiscation of their homes. They have suffered economic deprivation and social ostracization. All of this combining in this pressurized moment to say, it's really, really not worth it to follow Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews tells them, no, no, you have need of endurance. And so he writes this in verse 36. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, The people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his faith, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, he was taken, Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever 
would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which comes by faith. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, I know that many of you, uh, your favorite class in, in college or in high school was history. You just couldn't wait for it. You just loved history class. No, no, typically when I talk to people, they go, well, history's kind of boring. Uh, I didn't like it at all. And, I, and that's fine, everybody. I was a history and lit guy. I know many of you are uh, you know, calculus folks. I, I can spell calculus. I can't do calculus. But in fact, a negative view of history is not something that you find in the Bible at all. In fact, that we might have enduring faith for the day in which we live and for the times that are coming, what the writer of Hebrews does is say to people under pressure, there are people who've gone before you from whom you can learn, who are pointing us towards Christ, who are showing us what it means to walk by faith and not by sight until the coming one comes. Until that day dawns, that day for which we all long, until that day happens, here's what it means to live by faith. To, as he goes on to say in chapter 12, call these people a great cloud of witnesses who teach us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so when the Bible talks about faith, it certainly includes the idea of this objective content of faith, the things we believe, the kinds of things which are summarized in a doctrinal statement, like I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, or I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross, that he rose on the third day. Those are the objective contents, the faith that the church holds. But there's also this aspect, this dimension of subjective trust, of resting in Christ, the whole weight of your life being placed on him. And these people who are set before us show us what it means to not only hold to the truth about who God is, but how to trust him even under pressure. So when we look to history, we are not like the words that occur in Macbeth that Shakespeare put in his mouth. History is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. No, 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 no. History, particularly redemptive history, is pointing us a particular direction. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we read the account of these lives, we are reading about events and people that are examples to us. It says what happened to them was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. If you want to learn how to live at the ends of the ages, look to the past. Look to the examples that are set before us among God's people, but there's even more. Jesus said in Luke 24, he said, all that's written here speaks of me. 
So it's not only that there is an example that is set for us by our fathers and mothers who've gone ahead of us, but the, 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 the script itself, the story, the narrative itself is going to point us towards Jesus himself. It's going to reveal Christ to us. And you see that in this passage, where in these first few verses of chapter 11, the, the, the words that we read show us in microcosm a whole history of the world, from creation all the way to the end of history, from creation to consummation. David Arms is an artist that's based just outside Nashville in Tennessee, and he was commissioned to take up the whole story of the Bible. Could you show us in an image, in a picture, the whole narrative, the whole scope of Scripture from creation to the end? And so it begins with this beauty of creation, but then you find creation despoiled and darkened, the fruit ripped away, by the fall of humankind. So there's creation in the fall. But then, in the middle of the fall, God does not leave us in our disaster, but he intervenes redemptively. He comes, he brings redemption through the gift of his son. But not all is finished at that point. No, there awaits a yet more glorious day, as the hymn writer put it, when all things are made new, new heavens and new earth. How many of you long for that day? Not only is all that has been lost restored, but it is glorified. New heavens, new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that whole scope, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, glorification, the end of all things, it's all right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses three and following. Follow along with me, verse three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the first thing we learn about living by faith is that we have faith that God has created all things. Now, what can we say about that? Why does that strengthen faith? Well, there's so much we can say about it. I mean, perhaps the very first thing we should say about it is that God is God and we are not. Psalm 100 puts it this way, the Lord, he is our God. He is the one who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we did not author our own beginning. We are not eternal beings. He's the creator. We're the creatures. God is God and we are not. Though, of course, we prefer to be our own gods, this is a kind of madness which has befallen the human race, to believe that we fashion our own destiny. But no, God is sovereign, and all things find their origin in him. The whole cosmos does not find its origin in itself, but in God, who makes the visible from the invisible. And one of the things we should note about what he has made is that it testifies of him. The creation speaks of the creator. Paul wrote in Romans chapter one 
that God's invisible attributes can be clearly seen through what he has made so that oceans and mountains and trees testify to the wonder of who he is. Christian theologians have often meditated on this reality. Augustine, St. Augustine, and, and a fourth century theologian from North Africa said that there are two books that God uses to reveal himself to us. He uses the scriptures to show us who he is redemptively, but he also shows himself to us in the book of nature. Augustine wrote, some people, in order to discover God, read books. But there is a great book, the very appearance of created things. Look above you, look below you, note it, read it. God, whom you want to discover, never wrote that book with ink. Instead, he set before your eyes the things that he had made. Can you ask for a louder voice than that? Heaven and earth are shouting to you, God has made me. So this book of nature is a startling work that God has given for us to read. That's why what happens in science is so important. Those of you who work in the sciences are pursuing a theological task. There is no real conflict between faith and science. Galileo said, science tells us how the heavens go and the scriptures tell us how to go to heaven. When you and I read the book of nature and see its testimony, it points us to the beauty and the magnitude, the glory of who God is. The picture behind me is a deep field view of the sky taken by NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope. And what you see here are not stars, individual stars. This is a deep space picture of galaxies, whole galaxies. There are a hundred million stars in our galaxy, and here in this picture are hundreds of thousands of galaxies. And what's astonishing about that is what the psalmist said. In Psalm 8, it says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your finger." God, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. You know, if you're working with your, your fingers, you're down into something which is detailed, something which, which is small. You have, to be, you have to be mindful, very careful with it. You're not just chopping away at things. You're just not shouting at things. You're, you're dealing with something here. It's very small, so it requires just your careful little touch. And the scriptures say the infinite cosmos that we see all the time is something which is at God's fingertips. How great is our God that all of this is just at his fingertips. Makes me want to just start singing, how great is our God. He is the one who has made us and not we ourselves. And they testify. Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. You don't hear a voice, it goes on to say, but there's no place where their word isn't heard. At the birth of Jesus, Magi came from Persia because they saw a star and they followed the star as far as Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
And they said, well, 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 we don't know. We better find out. So where did they turn? They turned to the scriptures. And they looked at the prophet Micah. And the prophet Micah said, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Nature will get you this far. It will bring you to the understanding of who God is. It will teach you the knowledge of God, the creator. But then you turn to the scriptures, the second book, and find the knowledge of God, the redeemer. The star got them to Jerusalem. Micah, the scriptures, got them to Jesus. And that is why we need both books. Nature reveals God as creator, and the scripture reveals to us God the redeemer. And why do we need God as a redeemer? Well, you see it here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four. Because as soon as the writer of Hebrews says that by faith we understand that God created everything, we suddenly discover that beautiful, remarkable, glorious, spectacular creation has been marred. Something dark has entered. A discordant note has been written into its symphony. Look at verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. What has happened? Death has come in. Death has entered creation. How did that occur? This happens through the fall. The writer of Hebrews knows that those who he's writing to understand what's taken place between creation and the story of Cain and Abel. Their parents rebelled against God and they introduced brokenness into the society of Eden. Banished from it, east of Eden, humankind is now fallen out of communion with God. And the whole created order itself is groaning under the weight of that rebellion. And the sin and the evil that were inspired by the act of rebellion against God are deeply embedded into the souls of people. How did Abel die? Cain, who is spoken of in this text, his brother killed him. He murdered him. He died and his blood spoke. More about what his blood said in just a moment. But Cain killed him. He murdered him. In fact, in 1 John The word that John uses to describe the murder of Abel is a word that was used for sacrificing an animal. It's as if Cain looked at God and said, God, you want a sacrifice? I'll give you a sacrifice. And he hacked his brother to death. He killed him. He murdered him. This darkness had come to the world. Cain, God came to him. He said, sin is crouching at your door. Sin's portrayed as a 
a ferocious predator that's just waiting, waiting to pounce, waiting to enter the heart, waiting to destroy. This is what's entered the world. Cain, it's crouching, it's waiting. You need to master it, but he didn't. He gave into it, and it ended in murder, and it ended for Cain in curse and banishment and alienation. This is why the scriptures say over and over again, the wages of sin is death. Abel died. And his blood cried out. But as we can tell, God did not leave his creation. He did not leave his people in this state. Oh no, God comes into the world. Look at, look at verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. That's an amazing statement. It says in Genesis that Enoch walked with God. It says they couldn't find him after a while. He was missing in action. If the ancient world had milk cartons, Enoch's picture would have been on it. He was missing. Have you seen Enoch anywhere? No, he went for a walk. What was he doing? He was praying. He was walking with God. God didn't abandon the world. He didn't abandon his promise. He didn't abandon people because of sin. No, God entered the world. You and I weren't made for death. And here is a prophetic foreshadowing of the fact that you and not everybody will die. Enoch didn't die. He did not see death. The scriptures say that when Jesus comes again, those of us who are alive and remain till his coming will not die. We'll just be changed in a moment. Wouldn't that be wonderful to never see death? I mean, Enoch's just walking with God and after a while, God turned to him and said, hey, my house is closer than yours. Want to come to mine? And Enoch said, yeah, let's just go. Wouldn't it be great to just go? That would be wonderful. No death. Death is an intruder. Death is alien to our creation. It is not what we were made for. We were made for communion with God in eternal life. And that's what Enoch has because God intervenes in the fallen world to come for broken people and give them the gift of eternal life. He didn't see death. But that doesn't mean it was the end of the story for humanity and sin and evil and wickedness. No, no, no. In fact, if you read the, the next verse, you'll see that, oh, look, I've got such bad news for you this morning. Things got worse. It got worse. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Creation, fall, redemption, what follows? Consummation, the wrapping up of all things, the emergence of a new heaven and new earth. But before all that happened, after Enoch, after that intervention from God and redemption, the world didn't become a better place. The world got worse. Many people here are praying, oh Lord, pray you come again. The, world, the scriptures don't say that the second coming is preceded by, by just spectacular wonder. The world becomes more evil. The world becomes more dark. Evil matures. Of course the church grows and the gospel spreads, but that doesn't mean that evil is, is, is wiped out. 
And that's what happened in these days. The scriptures say, listen to this, in Genesis chapter, chapter seven through nine, listen to how humanity is described, six through nine, the story of Noah, it says this, the intent of mankind's heart was only evil continually. Listen to that again, only evil continually. Now I want you to think about that. The next time you're sitting there on the couch watching Fox or MSNBC or CNN, you're going, wow, the world really stinks. It probably really stinks. Great news, it's gonna get worse. And you say, well, pastor, why do you say it's gonna get worse? Because listen to what Jesus says. The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Oh, Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus comes again, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Did things get better or did things get worse? They got worse. Only evil continually. What happened? God came. He came in deliverance and he also came in judgment. God came to Noah. He said, Noah, I want you to build a boat. It's gonna rain. Now you have to remember the text says, because this was a very different world than the one we live in, it's an old world. There's a new heaven and new earth that emerged after the flood. This is an antediluvian world. And it says that in those times there was no rain that came out of heaven. Water just just sprang up in the earth and watered everything. There was a kind of built-in irrigation system into the world. And so then God comes to Noah and says it's gonna rain. And Noah said it's gonna what? Well, it's gonna rain. Well, what's rain? I'll tell you when it gets here. Just build the boat. You see, God doesn't always explain to us everything he's going to do. Faith is required because we don't always understand what God means by everything he says. He doesn't promise us sky riding and tell us he's gonna give us every single answer to all the questions that we have. This is repeated over and over again in the Bible. Jesus says, come and follow me. Where are we going? Just follow me. Abraham, go to the land that I'll show you. Which land do you want me to go to? I'll let you know when we get there. Don't you know that went well for him and Sarah? When he got home, honey, we're moving. Where are we moving to? I'll let you know when we get there. That's all God said. Just start packing. That must have been an interesting conversation. God comes to know. He says, it's going to rain. What's rain? I don't know. Can you imagine him going to, going to his wife saying, we've got to build this boat. Let's get going. What's it going to do? It's going to rain. What's rain? I don't know. But it's coming, and we're going to have to have a boat for it. And so they built. They built by faith. They didn't understand everything, but here's what they did understand. Only evil continually, and God is about to wrap the whole thing up. And so by faith, they built the ark. Enoch was taken up. Noah and his family were taken through. And they inherited, after the flood, a new heaven and a new earth. Because that's the way the world comes to an end. You see, buried in this moment is a prophetic picture of the way it's all going to go. The Son of Man will come with all of his holy angels. He will bring both judgment and deliverance. And the second coming is a day of both darkness and gloom, the scriptures say, for those who don't know God, but of course a day of brightness and joy for those who do. But there's no denying that it's coming. It will be as it was in the days of Noah. 
And so while Enoch is taken up, Noah and his family, they're, they're taken through. And so it says, it will be as in the days of Noah, so will the, the coming of the Son of Man be. The flood came, listen to these words in Matthew 24, the flood came and took them all away. Who was taken away? The wicked. All right, the flood came and took them all away. Say it with me. The flood came and took them all away. Who was taken? The wicked were taken away. And so he goes on to say, the flood will come, the Son of Man will come, and some will be working, some will be taken, and some will be left. Who's taken? The wicked are taken away. Some of you need to get a bumper sticker that says, glad to be left behind. <laughs> because the meek inherit the earth. Oh yes, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, but you gotta understand what's happening is that God's making a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. Everything's gonna change again because the kingdom is coming to the whole world and that day will surely dawn. How do you live right now by faith until the day of his coming, when the coming one will come and will not delay by faith. How do you escape the day of judgment? Because the day of judgment will surely come. And you can, you can sit here this morning and go, I'm skeptical about a coming day of judgment. People ask me sometimes, Pastor, do you believe this, this is the last generation? And my answer to that is, it's yours. It's yours. Your day is coming. He will come. He will come at the end of history. Some of us may live till the second coming, but he will come. How do you escape? How do you find entrance into the ark? Buried in that dark picture with Abel, do you remember it? Is the answer. When you read Genesis, you'll see that Abel was a shepherd. He was a shepherd, the first shepherd a good shepherd. And his brother killed him. And his blood hit the ground. And it spoke. And Abel's blood, when it hit the ground, the amplifying system of the whole cosmos, the earth, when that blood hit the ground, Abel's blood cried out, God, he killed me. God, avenge me. God, bring justice. And God did. But listen to Hebrews chapter 12. He gets to the end of all this and he says, you have come to the heavenly city, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to his, Jesus, the good, great, and chief shepherd, the shepherd whose, listen, sprinkled blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel, the first shepherd who died. Jesus, our shepherd, died. He hung between heaven and earth to pay the price for our sin. And when his blood ran down his face and his body, and the cross, and it hit the ground. It was amplified up to heaven, and what did it say? It said something better than Abel's blood. Jesus' blood said, forgiven. Jesus' blood said, justified. 
Jesus' blood said eternal life. Jesus' blood said you're forgiven. Jesus' blood said mercy. And Jesus' mercy triumphed over justice. And that is why you can have faith in him. The one who is coming has already come. And he paid the price. The good shepherd has died. He was slain by us. When I read Cain, I see myself. Sin was crouching and it, it got me. I'm the killer. You sing it. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has, has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I'm the Cain in the story. Jesus is the Abel, the good shepherd. And he calls on every one of you now to put your trust in his sprinkled blood because that is the only way of escape. That is the open door of the ark by which every single person who will put their trust in him can escape the flood that is surely coming. For he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Amen? Let's stand together. Would you pray with me? Good, great, and chief shepherd, teach us to put our trust in you. And in your sprinkled blood, which speaks better things, we are yours. You have bought us. We are yours. You created us. We are yours. You have redeemed us. We are yours, your bride, and we long for the day of your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and teach us until that day to walk by faith and not by sight. Amen.